Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. Now when I read books for this show, I use post-its to mark noteworthy pages. Sometimes it's a good quote, a lesson, a turn of the phrase, an insight, or maybe even a good joke. The book written by today's guest, Greg Lavoie, that I read is called Vital Signs, The Nature and Nurture of Passion. This book set a record for me for the most post-its uh, ever ever used in a, in a hardcover book. My unofficial count is 73. Uh, the title of the book, though, and my unofficial post-it counting shows that Greg is passionate about his work, and it shows in the words, the paragraphs, the pages, and the book. So what is passion? We know that it's a good thing and that some of the world's greatest sayings hover around the concept, one of which is from Hegel, who was a great, by the way, German philosopher that few people actually read or understand. But Hegel has a famous quote which goes like this, Nothing great in life was accomplished without passion. There's also something in the legal profession, which I'll add here, which is something along the lines of you can't convince somebody without passion. So let's learn a little bit more about how to bring more passion into our lives. And as I said, Greg Lavoie is the author of the new book, Vital Signs, but he's also the author of the best-selling book, Callings, Finding and Following an Authentic Life. He also wrote This Business of Writing. He's a former columnist and reporter for USA Today and the Cincinnati Inquirer. He's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Psychology Today, Omni, Reader's Digest, New, New Age Journal, and all sorts of other periodicals. He's spoken all over the place, including the Smithsonian Institute, Microsoft, EPA, and I like this one, the National Conference on Positive Aging. He's been a frequent guest of the media, including ABC, CNN, NPR, PBS. He's both a professor of journalism and visiting faculty at a number of major universities. In other words, he's doing very well with his passion business. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Delighted to be here. Well, uh, I was telling uh, you before the show that you packed so much information and so many so much wisdom into this book. It's really one of those books that is rich. It's the kind of book you you pick up, you put down, you you turn to any part of it, and there's something interesting going on. But to get things started here, now you did something that a lot of people think about but never do. A lot of people think about going to the ledge and asking themselves the question of, should I quit my job, sell the home, change careers and they people get to the ledge and they don't jump but you did make the jump what yeah. led you to make the jump oh boy 
Well, this would be, I presume you're referring to the jump from employment to self-employment. Right, right. The jump from, from, from a, from a uh, steady paycheck at the Cincinnati Inquirer to your freelance writing career. Right. Well, uh, what brought me to it, I think, is what brings a lot of people to the ledge, as you put it, uh, a certain quality of desperation a sense that I was over-ripening and rotting on the vine by staying put. And, uh, you know, at some point the equation just turns into uh, um, the prospect of turmoil being preferable to the kind of psychological death you're experiencing by staying put, in which case, you know, you let a rip and you take a, you take a flyer, and that's pretty much what happened to me. I'd been at a job and talked myself out of moving on for about five out of the eight years that I was there, yeah. I had begin, begun hearing the call to move on after about the third year, but I didn't do it because it's scary stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's just simply scary stuff, and it requires that you retool a lot of things in your brain, like the mindset of working for somebody else, which most people have, um, like your, my attitudes toward discipline and self-management, uh, my definition of success altogether. Um, so, but it was just a sense that I was not being true to, to who I was at that point. And increasingly, this is the beauty and the curse of these kind of calls. They don't go away. Yeah, that, yeah, that, is, that is really, that's really true. I mean, once, once that calling comes, it's, it becomes part of you. I mean, I know that in my second job, you know, I'm a lawyer, so in my second job, I had a, I guess I would, I'm going to call it a calling. I felt like I was pregnant with, with, a, with a book, and I, and I asked for a um, sabbatical. That didn't work. I tried part-time. That didn't work. So I just took the leap myself. Now, for the record, it's easier to make the leap if you're single. Um, and this is, this is something that makes this leaping I think, Greg, sort of difficult in our in our uh, time and age here, where we have so many people telling us about retirement uh, and you know how much money you need, and then we have this thing called uh, mortgage payments and mm-hmm. college college educations, and so it seems as if this leaping is it might be getting more difficult, but. I take it you're seeing more and more people actually follow their passion. Is that is that right? Well, you know, that's a hard one to kind of quantify. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I know I'm seeing more and more people in my workshops. Yeah. <laughs> now, I don't know if that's, you know, yeah. Yeah. that's a function of, of that, what you just said, uh, or, or publicity or what. But uh, there's certainly a lot of people who are hungry for it. And I'm not a big believer, by the way, in... Um, making these kinds of leaps, turning your life upside down, quitting jobs, uh, that sort of thing necessarily. I'm a bigger believer in letting the discernment process unfold where you take a step toward whatever the calling is, as you put it, that's become a part of you, and looking at the feedback your life gives you, and then proceeding that way. Take a step, look at the feedback. Take a step, look at the feedback. And let it unfold, because I think the point ultimately of these kind of passions and vitalities and callings is just to express them to some degree sooner than later. Get them in your life. I don't think it necessarily means you have to turn your life inside out. Uh, I think it's about getting it out, getting it from the inside out, 
And I think start small and see where it leads you um, is probably the better part of valor. Yeah, that that's that's very practical advice. And you yourself, I remember uh, in your in your book, you talk about how you you went about this very methodically when you left mm-hmm. your job as a journalist. Um, Absolutely. And and I think yeah. that, that 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 to me is much more digestible <laughs> than than just jumping because if nothing else, um, we are we are logical creatures and thinking ahead I don't think anybody has ever had saw a fault with thinking ahead and sort of planning mm. and so what what kind of um, what kind of preparation did you do and, and obviously a lot of folks have not yet read your book who are listening here so why don't you go through a little bit about what prep you did to make the leap from being from having a steady paycheck to following your own passion as a freelance writer yeah yeah, well, essentially, I did a couple of things. One is I gave myself one year to uh, essentially become a student of the life I wanted to live, and that was the freelance life in this case. Um, and what I did is I picked Thursday nights, just happened to work into my schedule. Uh, there's nothing sacrosanct about Thursdays. It's not like a Mayan calendar thing or anything. <laughs> I just, <laughs> just happened yeah. to work into my schedule. Yeah, and that's I, good. I picked ev- I'm sorry. That's good because I didn't want. I I mean, um, the Mayan calendar is uh, is is questionable. So in any event, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. So I picked every Thursday and um, in the bus back uptown. At the end of the day, I stayed downtown and took myself out to dinner. Was my first order of business because I wanted to build some reward to this process for myself. And then I went to the public library from six to nine when it closed and I studied the life I wanted to live. And I interviewed freelancers, and I wrote stories, and I did research, and I conducted interviews, and um, that was one piece. And that actually turned into a year and three quarters because the informational interviews I conducted with people who were doing what I wanted to do, they all said, you better have two years' worth of savings in the bank, yeah. which was um, a bummer. Yeah. Because I didn't have that kind of money in the bank at the time. It made me uh, extend my deadline almost another year. And, you know, of course, two years is a long time to be doing something when you'd rather be doing something else. But it's not 20. And it it goes fast. And I also uh, kept a, a progress log of this entire process. I wanted it to be a, a bona fide campaign here. So I kept a, a, a big fat ring binder into which I put daily to-do lists and uh, informational interviews and research notes and fortune cookie messages, uh, Calvin and Hobb cartoons, you name it. Yeah. Um, just wanted to really quantify this whole thing for myself. But like you said, I, I went about it like a scientist. You know, and uh, and uh, I have a, a strong practical streak. So uh, by the time I leapt into freelancing, I leapt into work. Yeah. I did not leap into an abyss. That's you know? one of the best. That's I think that's one of the best pieces of advice in this area that I've heard because it's real. And mm. and one of my questions for you is along the same lines, which is that is it possible to be a part-time passion seeker? Um, <laughs> Does it have to absorb your entire day 
and you know that's that's something that I struggle with myself, and I'm sure a lot of mm. people do. Who you know they try to find time in the day to pay the bills and to follow their passion. Because let's face it, not all um, passion pursuits come with a paycheck. No, true. Um, nor just for argument's sake, um, were they ever designed to do that. Right. You know, you, yeah. if you if we're talking about the notion of following a call. Uh, historically, that was never the purpose of a call, was to pay the, pay the mortgage. Right, yeah. um, it, it was to honor the will of a god or a goddess or of some inner source, call it what you will. And uh, the point was probably ultimately service. Um, but it wasn't necessarily about you, and it certainly wasn't about paying the bills. And it's just a, one of those little historical points that I like to remind myself of and point out to other people when they think I can't stop doing what I'm doing even though I hate it and it's killing me because I, I, I whatever I end up doing has got to pay the bills yeah. and uh, and also you know we're talking about the notion of following a passion but the difference between the callings book and the vital science book is that callings was primarily about finding a passion in the vocational arena and the new book is more about living passionately and that is something you can bundle into your days and nights in a in a number of ways it's not just about following a passion but living passionately and it's really kind of a skill set it's a mindset okay so, and so that's add, what okay. i'm now encouraging people to do okay okay so let me let let's take a a uh, traditionally sort of boring profession at least at least percept uh, at least perceptually such as uh, being an accountant and no okay. to accountants. Um, what could an accountant do to be more passionate? Is, is, this, is this what you're saying, that anybody in any calling could be more passionate about their work? Well, uh, again, I'm drawing it a little bit, slightly wider circle here that's more than just work. When I talk about I living passionately, I'm talking about um, having a sense of enthusiasm, curiosity, wonder, vitality, energy, engagement, and it could be in any arena, whether it's work or relationship or creative life or even spiritual life. So an accountant, I mean, anybody who feels like they are missing something, the sense of spark, um, goes by a lot of names, mojo, get up and go, uh, life force, um, they're looking for a place where they can feel more plugged in, a little bit more energetic and vital. And there's just multitudes of ways to get that into day-to-day -day life that may or may not even impact whether that person stays being an accountant or not. I see. Well, um, I, I see. I see. That's, that's really good, though, because basically what you're saying, it's sort of like spiritual preparation. It's sort of like hmm. uh, you know, preparing preparing the child's mind uh, and having the right attitude and but all all of those words that I just used you know their words their concepts but actually making it happen is a lot different than yes. just talking about it and so oh. so so what are some of the what are some of the things that you've seen that work for people who want to bring more passion uh, into their lives right yeah great question I uh I mean, first of all, I have a sense that starting to identify where you lose passion in your life might actually be a good place to start. Yeah. You know, because I think people can fairly readily identify where where it leaks out of their life. You know, and this could be anything from 
a job that sucks the life out of you or a relationship where you're, you know, something less than your full self to um, uh, little, little daily habits or things like uh, not farming out my taxes when tax time comes and doing it by myself. In other words, things that I shouldn't be doing myself because I hate it and I'm lousy at it. Right. Um, farming that out or driving in rush hour traffic when I don't need to be, or socializing out of guilt, yeah. you know, and obligation. There's just lots of ways you might be able to identify the losing energy and where you're losing. Uh, here's a great little example, and this is the level at which I'm encouraging people to, to address these issues. Um, I've been noticing for the last year a little habit of mine that every single day of my life kind of drains a little bit of energy from me. And that is that in that little transition zone between sleeping and waking up in the morning, um, what typically gets me out of bed is not an alarm clock because I'm self-employed and I don't use one, <laughs> but it's a thought. Yeah. And it's usually a thought about something I got to get done, something I should have gotten done yesterday and didn't, a uh, deadline that's looming, an irritating noise outside, some rebuke in the back of my mind for letting myself sleep late again. So in other words, a negative thought is what gets me out of bed most mornings. So I've been experimenting. Instead of letting a, a negative or a worrisome thought be the first thing that goes through my mind when my feet hit the floor, and, I, and in my mind that g literally grounds me and my day in that disposition, I'm now lying in bed for just a couple of minutes waiting for a more affirmative thought to come along and only touching my feet to the floor on that note. Yeah. So it's, a, it's an upswing rather than a downer, but I'm noticing that it really it has, its, has an effect. I'm, I'm not only rising but shining a little bit more. And that's the level at which I think people can experiment with bringing a little bit more energy into their lives and identifying where they're losing it. Yeah, I thought that was a really good example. Uh, it, it's, it's something that anybody could do, and there's something to be said for starting the day off on the right foot, to put it that way. And, it, and it's something within your control. This is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Greg Lavoie, the author of the new book, Vital Signs, The Nature and Nurture of Passion. And we're talking about how to bring passion into our lives for real. And the, I think a lot of people, in, in, I assume in your workshops, Greg, they probably come there and they say something like, well, I don't know what my passion is. Yeah. What do you What do you do about that? I mean, I know it's it's sort of similar. It's it, it may be connected to the point you just made, but it's such a it's it's such a common. I would think it's such a common question. That, yeah. You know, what do you do to to deal with that kind of problem? Well, uh, yeah. Well, per in my workshops, I literally ask a, a whole bunch of really nosy personal questions. <laughs> yeah. I yeah, too, I, yeah. you know, because what I'm after is I want them to walk away with a nice little body of data yeah. um, that, that's coming from their own files, not coming from me, um, that, that gives them a sense of the signs and the signals in their own life that's telling them where they belong, yeah. where they feel fired up and where they don't. Yeah. So it's really just, um, I mean, it's a skill I learned from my father when I was a little boy, because he's a scientist. Yeah. 
and uh, it was to ask questions and the discovery comes from asking questions and sometimes the right questions yeah yeah well i think one of the things that comes across here too and is that when we get to this topic of passion and callings people tend to think that it has to be some grandiose thing mm. you know like run the marathon or yeah. or us or a take a bicycle across the country or something but right but the it's it's in the little things and i think you make this point little things the mundane some people the mundane is is they're passionate about like planting flowers for example exactly or trimming the hedges and it's it's something that for me it makes you feel more alive and there's mm. just something about it and this this goes to uh, a point that um, I think comes across here, which is that you seem to be saying that not only does passion connect us with perhaps our true selves, to put it like that, but it also connects us with something beyond ourselves. Mm. Is that? Well, well, I think uh, there must be a reason why there's passion, and then there's compassion. Yeah. And uh, so I, I think there's a, there's a sense in which when we tap into our passions, we just naturally feel like sharing it with other people a lot of the time. Yeah. Not always. Yeah. I mean, some people's passion is just holding up and reading books, yeah. you know, or a quiet contemplative life. Yeah. But I think ultimately um, our passions and vitalities want to be shared. We, we want to um, take them out into the world and light other people's fires with them. And so in a sense, it, it, these things are often bringing us back out into the world in, to connect with community. Yeah. Well, there's also something here to go, to go on a different level here. Uh, you, you had a couple um, synchronicities that you talk about in your book, and I, and I love synchronicities. I think they're always so mm -hmm. fascinating. I, I loved your, uh, you have that story about uh, being in, I think you were in a tavern, and you were writing a letter to um, some former, old girlfriend. Some former girlfriend. It was a lime, and and you 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 mentioned something about a lime in the beer, and you uh, you felt like a lime in a bottle of glass, and you walked outside and you saw a lime in the gutter. I mean, things <laughs> things like that. Well, that's a pretty good memory on my part, huh? Uh, anyways, uh, yeah. I just read that, but but um, I uh, to me that is. That is really cool when something like that happens because it's like an affirmation that mm. you're that you're on the right path. Now, whether this the letter to your girlfriend was was an example is I probably not, but uh, I think that my feeling about this is that when you do follow your passion, things seem to open up up for mm. you more in the world. It seems like yeah, luck luck comes to you. What do you think right. about that whole thing? Yeah, Joseph Campbell talked quite a bit about that, you know, the guy who popularized the hero's journey right. and the bumper sticker, follow your bliss. Yeah. I mean, he, he talked about uh, that when you're on the right path, you get winks and nods from the universe from time to time, and yeah. synchronicities, he seemed to think, was one of them, and uh, meaningful coincidences, in other words. Yeah. Um, but um, also, he talked about the way opening up, that you get, there's you create sort of like a gravitational field or a magnetic field around you, and it draws things to you. 
Um, it could be instructional dreams or synchronicities. It could be resources and opportunities. It could just be flat-out interest from other people because I think other people are interested in passion and they're, they're drawn to it. Um, and uh, so there's, there's a sense in which by saying yes to your own life, you, you kind of create this kind of magnetic field and, and you're not the only one who will benefit from it. You know, um, I think there's a reason that some of the world's great stories like Sleeping Beauty uh, or The Grail King, uh, and there are versions of those, by the way, in cultures all around the world. These, these kind of stories speak to the idea that when the king sleeps, the kingdom sleeps. When the queen goes to dormant, like in Sleeping Beauty, the whole kingdom goes dormant. Uh, but when the king and the queen awaken, so, does, so do the kingdoms, yeah. and they start to flower. And I think there's something, what they're telling us in these stories is that when we awaken, we help the kingdom to awaken. When, you know, the small steps are the big picture. You know what I'm saying? I I ran across a bumper sticker a couple of years back. It said, maybe the hokey pokey is what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it it reminds me, I had a guest on the show a couple of months ago, Temple Hayes. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of her. Oh, sure. The minister down in Florida. Yeah. And and she's she's got a new book out. And I don't, it's something like, when did you die or or something like Mm. that. And she talks about the hokey pokey. But but one of her her, um, messages is that, when you don't, I mean, I'm paraphrasing and 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 uh, perhaps misparaphrasing, but it's something. But if you don't follow your true purpose, then you die a little bit, and it's sort mm. of the, it's sort of the same, it's sort of the same thing. And you know, I can't help but think that on a global level, without getting too big picture about this, but it would be we can't do worse from having more people follow their passion. Because most people, I think, their passion is something positive, as mm. opposed to something generally. That, you know, I mean, I was going to say. I mean, do you think that making money is a passion? Is a legitimate passion? Sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I think there are some people who they live for that. Yeah. Um, you know, not that it doesn't come back to roost occasionally. I remember an interview once with uh, J. Paul Getty, yeah. and he was lamenting at the very, very end of his life. Um, he said, I would gladly give all of my millions for one lasting marital success. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. know, and, you know, he wouldn't have made that trade-off early in his life when he was amassing all those millions. Yeah. Uh, this is something that happened to him late in life when you look back and go, oh, crap. You know, uh, this is what I sacrificed in order to to get this. But I think um, the making of money can certainly be um, a passion. I just saw the movie The Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Yeah, Perfect example, I think. Yeah, but we um, have a lot. Is, yeah, yeah, we have a lot of people who that appears to be the passion. Although on the other, I think there's a difference between people who, who, who uh, follow uh, the money uh, for passion, and people who follow it because it's the it's the default goal uh is is the issue though i mean we Mm. know i mean what what's always amazed me is how many real old folks are are still alive and pesky and uh, and um and active who are Mm. extremely rich it's their life like like warren buffett is an example Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's a bunch of folks like that who are over there who are over 80 
and they're having the time of their lives. Uh, right. Be- because this is something this is something that uh, motivates them. It's something that excites them, and you know they're not all bad people. No, uh, certainly not. He's given away a huge percentage of his yeah. wealth. Yeah, I mean they're they're great philanthropists. A lot of those guys. Well, yeah. it it brings it brings me to this issue about fame, which fame. which which you also talk about, and I was intrigued by this because we we have everybody it seems wants to be famous uh, at some point, and it's it seems to me that there is this recognition. Uh, that goes with being famous. That um, all of us strive for it, but but I I always wonder why <laughs> why do people why do people want to be famous and mm. and is it is it something about being recognized? What what's your spin on this? I mean, you have a really in, a really interesting part of your book where you you um, where you go to that website yeah, about uh, I want to be famous website whatever it's called and people oh, I want to yeah. right 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 and people want to be famous about the most mundane things you know I made it to work today and I made it home I want to be I want to know I mean it's it's an accomplishment what is it do you think that dry, that that makes people uh, sort of um, value fame and recognition so much yeah well uh, I I usually think that what's at the core of it is the passion to be seen the passion to be to feel special and uh, you know there have been and I cited some of these you know authors and studies in that chapter is that you know there are people who who seem to think that people who are crazy for fame uh, often didn't get a lot of uh, the kind of attention that little kids need when they're in their formative years, and it just goes into overdrive. And, of course, we live in a culture that, at the moment that really supports that overdrive yeah. piece, yeah. Um, you know, the, the making of celebrities. But uh, I think ultimately that's why I refer to it as sort of like the social version of love, yeah. that in a sense really what people are after is tell me I'm special, tell me I'm unique, tell me I'm loved, um, you know, that's why everybody made fun of Sally Fields when she was at the Oscars and said, you really love me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? And yeah. it certainly says something when Madonna is told that she's now tied with Elvis Presley for the most number of singles, and she, her response is, you're kidding. Me and Elvis? Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to tell my father. Maybe yeah. that'll impress him. Yeah, yeah, that was a really good. That was a really good. It's a. It's amazing. You know, it makes it makes me think that not only are celebrities human, which is a revelation, but <laughs> but that it, it's connected to this other point about adulthood. Um, and this is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm talking with Greg Lavoy, the author of the new book Vital Signs. The Nature and Nurture of Passion. We're talking about Madonna, Sally Field, passion, being famous, and all sorts of great topics here. Um, before I talk about at, um, adulteration, which is a, a, a nice spin on that word, I mean, I don't really know what is what drives folks, but I, I think it, it's got to be, to me, related to um, friendship and being recognized and being uh, loved, uh, being part of a community. This whole drive 
to to be famous or 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 to be noticed. Mm. Um, and I I don't really know, but it's it's just remarkable to me because a lot of the people who are famous don't want to be famous, and and so it really is a how can I put this? It really is a double-edged sword. But, yeah. Um, I, I was most impressed by how mundane the 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 things are that people want to be known for, and it's sort of like everybody really does work hard, and everybody does deserve to be noted. Um, and it's just it maybe it's a failure in our society where we don't pay enough attention to the little things. I don't know. Mm. Well, I think there's maybe there's a connection between that and the uh, the amount of attention deficit disorder in this culture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. there's it's an interesting um, correlation there. Attention deficit is kind of what a lot of fame seeking seems to be about, and it's everywhere. Yeah. I mean, my God, I spent half of my childhood on Ritalin. <laughs> Yeah, my 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 parents seemed to think I I needed it. I, I'm not sure it wasn't. I mean, it was a mother's little helper, but I think it was uh, my mother giving the pills to us instead of taking them herself. <laughs> yeah, well, th- that I guess it, I guess that drug was prescribed more in the in the couple decades ago than it is now, as far as I know. But um, um, but I'm not sure myself. But yeah. I, I just think it's interesting how much of it there is still going around and how much you hear about ADD and ADHD and you just kind of wonder um, to what degree it may be a function of um, a lack of the proper kind of attention when we're growing up. Yeah. Healthy attention in any case, not attention for acting out. I mean, I I got a lot of attention for acting out. I spent half my school years in the principal's office. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it it's some it's something that I mean there's certain things that will remain a, a a mystery but I I do think that it's it's a lesson for all of us it, that it doesn't matter what age you're at what what uh, what role you're playing what what part you are in the hierarchy everybody everybody wants and needs uh, attention and recognition one of the one of the um, again many insightful things in your book is you talk about how um much of much of our our problem with this passion thing is this thing called adulthood where where we when we're kids things seem to be easier but there's something that happens when we quote unquote grow up that we that we lose this the passion and something and I think you have a line with something about the adult is the husk of the child or something like that but right. but but what what is what is the problem with adulthood now and and what can we do about it oh boy well you know whose work really speaks to me around this question uh, is of all things a poet um, named Robert Bly who wrote a book called a little book on the human shadow hmm. little tiny book to you, something you can read in one evening. And he has the most elegant description I've ever heard for how we get separated from our innate energies and vitalities. And uh, in a nutshell, what he says is that when we're little, all of us, every single one of us, when we're one or two years old, we have a 360-degree personality, energy, enthusiasm, radiating out in pretty much every direction until our parents start sending us to our rooms for radiating certain parts of it. 
okay? Yeah. And then um, we get into school, and same thing. In order to fit in, have report cards that say gets along well with others, we have to stuff even more of ourselves in the bag. Uh, we get into the working world, same thing. Parts of us organizational life would prefer we leave out in the parking lot when we punch into work. Um, so what, what's happening, he says, is that everybody from early in life on through adulthood carries around an invisible bag. And everything that our parents don't like, our teachers don't like, our um, um, employers don't like, gets sliced off this nice round 360-degree pie of vitality and stuffed in the bag. And so he says that by the time you're 20, early adulthood, um, even late adolescence, um, you're, you've spent 20 years stuffing most of yourself in the bag. You end up with a slice by the time you're 20. Mm -hmm. So we spend the first 20 years of our lives trying to figure out what we're going to put in the bag and the rest of our lives trying to get them out again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's. I, I do remember Robert Bly actually, uh, and I did not know about that one, but, but that, that's, that seems to be right on point, which is that in this, it, it's sort of like a multi-tier conditioning process, mm, exactly. or, or, or self-limiting, or self-limiting process, and. And one of the one of the things I'm always uh, telling people about this is like, look, if it feels like it's a Sisyphean task, getting back to your aliveness. There's a reason for that, and part of the reason it's not just your struggle and your problem. This is multi-generational stuff, yeah. and it's just important to realize that, that you got this from your parents, they got it from theirs, and back into the mists of time. And I just say that by way of, of offering them some self-compassion. You know, it's like, wow, this isn't, this isn't just my, my burden to try to unpuzzle. This has yeah. preceded me by generations. Yeah, and I just think that's important to remember. Yeah, no, I think you're. I think you're exactly right, and it's sort of. I mean, you don't realize how conditioned we are mm. until you talk to people who aren't conditioned. Uh, and and for example, um, you know, my it, you know in my profession, uh, in the in in the legal profession, my my quasi non passionate side of me, um, you know, we're. We're taught not to um, basically give a lot of credibility to the other side. We're taught to be critical. On the other hand, trust trust is so important in, in everything. Uh, in, in law as well, you have to have a certain amount of trust or nothing gets done. And and at the end of the day, though, it, it, uh, you always learn that, that um, we have been conditioned to close our eyes over over obvious things, and it, you're mm. exactly you're also right that that it's it's a it's a generational thing. I I uh, my own view is that most of it is in the spiritual, religious, scientific uh, realm where we've really been conditioned. But but uh, and it is a long process of, of breaking free. But it it's something that is real is really healthy. To, to sort of face those tasks and burst out of them. The, mm. I, I, I happen to think, in, in my experience, that most people, whatever age, they're grown-up kids. We're really kids at heart. And, mm. and mo even, even the most tight-vested uh, Wall Street investment banker, the, the, most, the, the strictest, most conservative lawyer, most, most of the 
folks that I come across, they're kids at heart, and a lot of folks are just faking it. And, and it, it really, it really is something that uh, you know. What I've learned is that you can be a child inside, and as long as you know that you're faking it on the outside, to, to you know, you know, to get by. So to me, faking it is really a really important part of this. So mm. maybe that's a odd way to put it, but that's that's what works for me. Well, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I remember um, reading a story about Carl Sagan. Remember Carl Sagan? Right. right. Um, going into um, both a kindergarten class and a high school class to talk about science. And he described the kindergartners as open for business, you know, uh, just endlessly enthusiastic and avidly curious about everything and natural-born scientists, never heard of a dumb question. And the uh, high schoolers he described as jaded and the the sense of wonder, uh, which I think is an, an essential ingredient in passionate living, relegated to kid stuff, uh, and of course terrified of asking dumb questions. Yeah. And I think of that that description of what what he's saying there uh, as key to not losing this inner inner kid that you're talking about throughout the course of life, and just maintain a grip on your beginner's mind. And to refuse to lose it, yeah, yeah, you know, I, it's yeah. just critical. It's what the educators call being a lifelong learner, yeah. really. And it, and just hold on to your sense of wonder about things. Don't let don't let the world beat it out of you. Yeah, I, I'm just really amazed how some people uh, think that because they get older, therefore they have to act like their parents acted when their parents were that old. Mm. And it's to me that is exactly the opposite of where things should be going. Uh, one thing that really, really struck me, and I forgot where I heard this, but it was something like a um, a woman, a uh, you know, eighty, eighty-five years old, and you know, going through the the um, process of of, uh, of aging and changing. And she said something that, you know, she looks at herself and she still feels like a 14-year-old girl. There's still a 14-year-old girl inside of her. And right. that, that really hit me because, you know, part of this is, is unleashing that child inside. And that is sort of the same thing as, this, as passion. I think it's the same, it's the same concept, I hope. Um, and we don't know how far it would take us, but but it it does connect us, I think, with with the uh, you know with the child inside, and it leads it leads to this topic, which I think is very interesting that we I want I want you to talk about a little bit, which is the relationship between following your passion or connecting with your passion and health, mm. and and you you have some. And this is something that a lot of people are looking at now, and it's not just it, it, to me right now, Greg. I don't know how much how much reading you're doing in the medical area, energy healing, all this kind of stuff, but but it's becoming more and more mainstream for the medical profession to be connecting things like stress and mm. and illness, and 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 what what have you seen out there uh, on how this following your passion or or being more passionate i should put it that way uh, what what effect that would have on health and what you've seen yourself well so i'm going to include mental health in that category 
along with physical health. Sure. And I, uh, I have heard it said, in fact, it was Thomas More who wrote a book called Care of the Soul, who said repression of the life force is what drives most people into therapy. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that is really critical right there, is um, the, the, the things that inhibit and the ways that we inhibit our own life force, it takes a lot of energy to hold in creative energy or um, self-expression or the truth or your own power. It takes a lot of energy to hold up those walls, yeah. and it's draining. I mean, it's physical work, and it's draining, and it's mental work, and it's draining. And I just think that the constant work of inhibiting yourself and your self-expression uh, has been shown to weaken the immune system, the heart, and the nervous systems. Yeah. And yeah. so there's something about the inhibiting forces that are, um, especially when they're chronic, um, as opposed to acute, short-term, um, they, they definitely have health consequences. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in the Western uh, medical um, world, you know, the, the traditional way of looking at things is so much different than the Eastern which and specifically what I mean is that in about when when Darwin came along this whole notion that there is this vital life force was was sort of thrown to the dogs as mm. as as quackery you know when and then uh when the when the neo darwinians took over uh, and the modern uh, evolutionist who who believe that uh you know DNA uh, explains it all, and and that we're basically machines. I mean, and and of course that is mainstream science, and um, of course I don't think that's right. But my point being that the Eastern folks who who believe who do believe in in more of a uh, spiritual center, uh, energy center, and more and more folks in this country are going in that direction as well. I mean, there to me there is truth to the notion that there is this thing, a life force, and we don't have to be all touchy-feely when we talk about it, but, but when medical science shows that there's a connection between this repression and illness, I mean, that's got to mean something. And, and so mm. I, 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 think that this is, I think this is a really important development. Uh, the, you know, the cover of Newsweek, as you, you probably saw, I've not read the article, but it's something like... Um, you know, it has a picture of a baby, and it says, uh, "This this child will live to 142 or something like that." Right. Um, yeah. You know, how's that going to happen unless we are more passionate? That's that's where I'm going with this. Uh, right. So. Tap into deeper reserves of of health and well-being. Right. Right. Yeah. You know what's a, a fascinating little. Um, scientific piece around this that you're describing is um, out in uh, Sausalito, California, is a place called the Institute of Noetic Sciences, right. and I believe noetic refers to consciousness studies, right. and it was started by an astronaut, um, and Ed Edgar Mitchell to be precise, and uh, they have the world's largest database out there of spontaneous remissions, yeah. all right? right? And um, f this is from disease. Uh, in other words, um, inexplicable, uh, remarkable recoveries, they call them. And I went out there and I did a, uh, a story for Omni. Remember Omni magazine? Right, right. I think I subscribed to it. Yeah. Um, and I did a story on that database, 3,500 cases from around the world of what 
doctors are loath to admit to, of course. They refer to them as misdiagnoses. Yeah, yeah. But um, one of the things that really jumped out at me about that database was that in a lot of cases, very statistically significant number of cases, um, what immediately preceded a spontaneous remission was a profound and affirmative personal change yeah. in people's lives. So like um, reconciling with some long-despised parent or um, taking some new radical responsibility for your life, marrying your longtime sweetheart, um, unearthing some, some buried passion, um, something, something dramatic. But it was a, this, to me, was a, a very interesting correlation between um, dramatic healing and a, and a very profound affirmative personal change. And that suggests that people have some power in affecting the course of even, uh, you know, some of the big diseases like cancer yeah. um, by, being, by being willing. And even if it doesn't heal your body, it's likely to heal your life. Yeah. But to identify some profound and affirmative personal change you could make, maybe should make, that would have a healing effect on your life. And that, to me, the science is behind that. Yeah, and I I think that that's where that's where things are going. I mean, as I as I put it, uh, in in the in the writing that I do, as the as the evidence and case studies build in favor of things like spontaneous remission, it becomes harder and harder to dismiss them out of hand, and and so it's and I think that we're starting to see medical science open up to some of this. I mean, for example. I, I, what's the harm in before they do the operation or before they do the chemotherapy or whatever that you go through a period of of counseling or therapy um, mm. trying to trying to bring out these 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 touch points I mean I think that this is really where where medical science needs to go and this we're perhaps a little off topic here but I I think that this all comes together at some point because I think that there is power in in agreeing upon this methodology. In other words, the more people that think there's something to it, the more it's going to work. Uh, mm. the, you know, the placebo effect is a good example of that where, um, you know, if if the patient really believes that the doctor believes that the, all you know, you know, the more confident uh, that the person is, the more it tends to work. Um, but right. but but it, but it's it's really it's really interesting. It's it's really interesting stuff. Now, I don't want to forget to talk a little bit about risk taking uh, mm -hmm. in your book because this is something that is sort of an eye opener. Uh, you you talk about how to sort of open up your your susceptibility or or your willingness to to uh, to be passionate uh, that sometimes it, you have to like fight through the fear and take that risk and mm. uh, and um, there's a couple things here one of them is um, how important is that. And and and, re and related to that, is there um, is there something that has worked for in your workshop? Some some uh, risk taking methodology or, or or lesson that you give folks to sort of open them up to 
to the importance of risk and breaking through this and breaking through fear. You know, you know, there's a lot there, but I'd like to have you talk a little bit about the the fear part of this. Yeah. Yeah, risk is the big bugaboo, I think, for a lot of people. Um, you know, and we're coming off of a great recession, and we're living in a code orange world, and people are battening their hatches, and, um, you know, it's, it's, maybe it's asking a lot of people to just take risks for risk's sake or for growth and change, and it, sometimes it's a hard argument with people who are really battened down. But, uh, I mean, the way to work it is step by step, again, uh, I mean, I think Mark Twain had it right. He said, habit is habit. It's not meant to be flung out the window. It's meant to be coaxed downstairs one step at a time. Yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah. that's really my, my approach. Um, and um, I think a couple of things may, may be, you know, useful for people. One is to remember that risk is absolutely relative. You know, it's whatever scares you. So this is not a comparison game. It's like, well, risk means you know, um, jumping out of airplanes or wrestling alligators or something or traveling around the world with a backpack. And I, I'm always encouraging people to, to look at the little risks that are right in your own backyard that are, that are stuff that you can knock off much more easily without shorting your circuits, like um, taking your jokes to open mic night, you know, or being the first to make up after a quarrel with your partner or... Um, you know, ordering something other than your usual at the restaurant. Yeah, yeah. You know, just li little ways of stepping past the comfort zone. Yeah. And again, looking at what happens, you know, if you have a calamitizing mindset that says risk equals trouble, and you drive to work a slightly different route, it's, it's stepping out of your comfort zone a little, and you get to work just fine, maybe even a little earlier. You, you know, you look at the feedback your life gives you, and you realize, oh, well, I survived that. Yeah. All right, what else? Yeah. So there's a way in which the, the small steps approach is just probably most workable for people. But also just to simply remember that risk is, this is not about comparing yourself to anybody else. Yeah. It's just whatever um, scares you, and whatever's capable of bringing some excitement and novelty and discovery and momentum into your life. Yeah, I th I think that that is. I mean, the more I I um, think about this this field, not just not just uh, what what you read about, but so many related topics. I think that courage is is underlying a lot of this. I think courage underlies uh, great scientific achievements. It, it underlies great literature. Uh, people that are willing to th to have the courage to think and do things differently, and yeah. it, it's it's something it's something. I mean, you could be the smartest person in the world, but if you never leave your room, or or or, or you never write the letter to the to the publisher, and mm -hmm. uh, or to the hundred publishers, whatever whatever it takes. Uh, you know, you know, to get out there, or, or, and you could say same thing about about singers. I mean, um, Tracy Chapman. I always think about her. The, um, you know, she sang on the sidewalk, and she became a, you know, a Grammy award winning singer. I mean, she had the courage to go out. I mean, that that was courageous. And so, it, t to me, it's it's this courage. It, it's related to um, the the fear mechanism that we have in in our society and you know we don't have time to get into the whole the whole media part of this but but clearly 
we live in a culture of fear and I don't want to I don't want to overstate it I don't I'm not a conspiracy theorist on this point but it does seem to me that the media does underscore uh, the fear element and it and it really influences people I mean it really mm. it, it, I think I think it's a it's a problem um, what since you came from the media, and maybe you're still part of it in a way. I mean, what do you, what do you think about? I mean, do you think that the media have a has a negative effect on this whole area, or do you think it's not relevant? Oh no, no, no. I think it's extremely relevant, yeah. and, and there have been studies that show that the more people watch the uh, the six o'clock news, the more immersed they are in media, the more fearful they tend to be. And yeah. I think part of it is, and I noticed this while I was a reporter, is. Um, Bad news sells better than good news. Yeah. You know, there's the old the old comment about um, journalism that's if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. If it scares, it airs. Yeah, that's great. You know, and so there's a there's a tendency to to uh, heap on the bad news, and uh, good news doesn't get the same play because it's not as not going to people aren't going to pick it up in the dentist's office and and read it yeah. as likely as they are some some uh, bloody, scary, terrifying piece of news. But the more people immerse themselves in it, the more fearful they tend to be of life in general. Yeah. And uh, so I think there's a place, there's, there's something to be said for an occasional media fast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, yeah, I think that, that that's essential because, unfortunately, it sort of um, deepens deepens the hold of fear and therefore decreases the chances of someone taking risks and, mm-hmm. and unless you unless you break free of that because one of the things that is it's it's un it's unbelievable to me and it's and I'm sure I'm gonna probably uh, underestimate it but uh, you know the media when, when we have these news reports from some place in turmoil I mean we're looking at the the only block where there is some kind of turmoil, but the rest of the country, you know, 100,000 square miles or something, everything is perfectly fine. I mean, and, and we tend to forget that most people are, gen- are, are generally the same, and they're all trying to feed their family and, and pay for the roof over their heads and all this, and, and it sort of puts this distorted perspective upon us, um, but the this this whole thing about um, you know building up the you know the risk of whether it's flying in an airplane or whether it's living on uh, on the Gulf Coast or traveling to Israel or whatever whatever it is I mean it's it's something that is not healthy and it's something that I think unfortunately Greg we we have to um, we have to struggle with in this in this era of twenty four seven news. Oh, absolutely! I haven't figured out what the what the solution there is. Now, lastly, um, there is one thing here that I thought was. I mean, there's a lot of original things in your in your book, which is which is really great. But I thought you had a really neat twist on this notion of patience, and I just hmm. like to have you talk about. Um, you know, it, it 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 was it was something that I learned where if you're you know it's supposed to. Patience is generally good because you're expecting something to happen. You just have to be patient. It's going to happen. You sit around. You twiddle your thumbs. Um, but you talk about relinquish about about how relinquishment is actually 
the better approach. I just like to have you, lead, you know, talk about that a little bit because I thought that was really, really helpful. Hmm. Relinquishment. Um, you might have to refresh my memory. Relinquishment of what? Well, is the better. Method? You were talking about um, rather than focus on uh, the goal and wait for it to happen. It was. It was. It was better to to get to not dwell on the goal but to put your head down and work hard with a purpose oh yeah well i i i i've thought for a long time that patience is really one of the missing links <laughs> frankly for a lot of people in the in the uh, process of um success and achievement is the, the willingness to simply keep your head down quit looking at you know what other people are thinking and what other people are saying and what kind of feedback and what kind of reviews and whether you're famous and what your ranking is on amazon.com and just do your damn work yeah you know just keep your head down and and just focus on what do you what is your teaching what is your ministry what do you have to say to the world that you believe the world needs to hear yeah you know and uh and i think patience on the order of years now this is getting more and more difficult i think in in the internet age because we have you know snapchat attention spans and uh um and i think it's challenging i mean i heard the motorola company coin the term micro boredom <laughs> um and uh and this is in their attempts to sell their cell phones um, Microboredom is these little snatches of time that come in everybody's everyday life, waiting in line, sitting in traffic, uh, and your daily commute, and uh, which apparently we have less and less patience for. And they're of course happy to fill with their their latest cell phones or digital busy work technology. But um, you know the the fact that we have to have, and I have seen this little TV sets mounted above gas pumps and urinals. Yeah, that's a sorry state of affairs that yeah. we don't. You can't even be idle for a few minutes without going nuts. Yeah. Um, and I just think that, um, you know, passion is not just a quick kicking up of the heels. It's also um, stamina, on, you know, and uh, patience. And it took Scheherazade a thousand and one nights. That's three years to turn the Sultan around. Yeah. yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it, well it, it's also... It's also um, Sort of the an inspiration or a life coming from inside and not not from the outside. It's 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 a life that comes from the heart, and if and to the extent we're bombarded by external messages, we sort of lose sight of ourselves. And yeah, that, that, that's not a healthy thing. As we're, as we're well, talking. I think that's very easy to do. Yeah. So so, anyways, we've quickly come to the end, and uh, there is so much in. In Greg's book, Vital Signs, and again, it's one of those books, folks, that you want to get it and just uh, sort of savor it because there's a lot of there's a there's there's so many um, good quotes and and uh, and anecdotes and stories and personal personal things which we didn't do that much of here, um, and it's it's really a, it's really a great book. And and Greg, so you have a website. Why don't you tell the listeners about your website? Sure. Yeah, it's sort of world headquarters for me these days. It's just greglavoy.com. G R E G G L E V O Y. And okay, so then again, uh, you know, Greg's book I'm sure is found in most bookstores and and, and on Amazon. And mm-hmm. and lastly, uh, along with telling everybody about um, what a great book this is, I, you know, at the end of the day, uh, that it doesn't, it cannot hurt 
for everybody to be more passionate because I think that um, my hope is that if we focus on what we're passionate about and and follow follow that um, passion we we may not change the world but we're probably gonna be less likely to to mess it up this is philip camella this is conversations beyond science religion thank you for listening you've been listening to conversations beyond science and religion hosted by philip camella to find out more about philip and his book the collapse of materialism visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.